Galatians chapter 3 in your Bibles. We're looking at verses 25 through 29 this evening. The title of the, the sermon, The Divine Solution to Isms. Thank you. The Divine Solution to Isms. We live in a very interesting day and age. Uh, not, uh, it's been a long time in our country since the cries for the various isms that society deals with, racism and sexism, have been as loud as they have been in the past several years. You could add to that bigotry and discrimination, all of these different uh, contentions in our society. Women struggling for privileges which they perceive society has stripped from them in deference to men. Uh, people of one skin color uh, struggling for privileges which they insist have been given disproportionately to people of another skin color. Uh, overweight people angry at the shame they perceive by the words, the actions, and perhaps the mere presence of those who are not overweight. We live in a world that is divided along almost every line possible. Black versus white, male versus female, uh, big versus small, uh, skinny versus fat, uh, you can even get petty with it. Skiing versus snowboarding. iPhone versus Android. I mean, we're, we're always fighting over something. And the nation is divided. We've got this left-right paradigm in government. We, we, have, uh, we see it in the church. We see it in politics. We see it in society. We see it everywhere. Division. Human nature has this unique urge to unite, but it also has a propensity to divide. There is something inside of us that makes us want to look past our differences, but seemingly something stronger inside of us that simply cannot get over our differences. Is there a solution to these insurmountable problems? Now, a great debate could rage about this particular generation and the isms that are being brought up. When you look at the things that have happened in the past several weeks, uh, it's more or less a bunch of spoiled brats that are complaining over non-problems than it is true problems. But the issue is still there. It still comes up and people are constantly seeking solutions. What is the solution to uh, what society calls racism? What is the solution to what society calls sexism? To the disproportionate number of of this gender in certain elements of society, to the disproportionate number of this skin color and these elements of society. Is there a solution? Well, indeed there is. And it is the same solution that we find to nearly every other problem that we will come across in this life. And that solution is the Word of God through Jesus Christ. Now, recall last time we were together, we considered the divine purpose of the law ending with the understanding that the law is mankind's schoolmaster to lead him to Christ, that the law served to restrain evil hearts, but more directly served also to reveal to mankind his deeply sinful nature, the deeply sinful nature of his own heart, and thus bring him to the place where he recognized his complete incapacity to save himself. And so he would fling himself at the mercy of God, through Jesus Christ, to do for him what he cannot do for himself. And today we pick up there. In verse 25 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul is continuing his thought, referencing the law as our schoolmaster, and I'm going to read, beginning uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, and we'll read through verse 29. 
But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we pick up this evening in verse 25 as far as our text is concerned. Last week I had initially intended to preach through verse 26, but chose at the last minute to finish at verse 24 uh, for a very specific reason. I wanted the final thought of our emphasis last week to be upon the law's purpose itself. I didn't want to muddy the waters with um, the extra, the implications of what happens after the law. I wanted us to understand that the law has a purpose. And I wanted us to sit on that understanding of what the purpose of the law is. To focus um, on the reality of the law bringing us to Christ, not the economy that has since overshadowed the law. This means, however, that we are indeed picking up right in the middle of a thought, right in the middle of context. And as Paul transitions his thought from what the law was ordained to do unto what has divinely replaced it in function, that's what we see in verse 25. He says, But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but when faith came on the scene, the schoolmaster went away. We were graduated from under the, the tutors that we have had previously, primarily the law. The law existed to bring us to Christ, but once that faith exists, that faith is self-sustaining. Faith does not need the law to supplement it. Faith does not need the law to validate it. Faith is a self-sustaining entity needing nothing to justify its existence. We don't need to tack the law onto faith. Faith doesn't lead us to the capacity to keep the law. Faith graduates us from the law. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, before you accepted Christ as your Savior, sin and the law and the reality that you were guilty before God is what held you down. It is what focused you on the reality that you couldn't do it. When faith came, the law went away. The law ceased to have power over you. The need for you to be brought to a place of understanding of your own sinfulness went away because you accepted your sinfulness when you accepted Jesus as the solution to it. In other words, the law holds no definitive place in the life of one who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we mentioned last week this should not mean that we hate the law, for indeed the law is spiritual and right and good. We also mentioned this does not mean that we cannot learn from the law or even use the law in evangelism because the law reflects much of the character of God. The law does reflect the character of God so we can use the law as we frame our principles and standards by which we live our life. But it's a framing of standards. It's not the expectation by which God, God demands we live. The Christian uh, does not need the law in any case, and we might look at the law 
the same way an adult might look at a set of bicycle training wheels. The adult remembers why they were necessary and maybe even some about when they were necessary. The adult appreciates them for what they are and for what they do. The adult can even learn some interesting things about the nature of riding a bike from the training wheels. But once you don't need the training wheels anymore, you don't keep the training wheels on your bike. And once you have them off and you know how to ride without them, you don't put them back on because they serve no continuing purpose to you. They still serve a purpose, but not to you. You're beyond the training wheels. The law still serves a purpose. The law is what condemns man. The recognition of God's righteousness and of God's holiness and God's character is what makes a person recognize he can't attain unto it. But when you've accepted Christ by faith, you've accepted the embodiment of that which fulfills the law. The law is fulfilled in you. Can you learn about God from it? Yes. But does it have any bearing upon, upon your Christian walk? Well, no. It doesn't any longer. And Paul explains why in verse 26. He says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. We're not going to explain too much about the significance of being a child of God this evening as contrasted with being under a schoolmaster because Paul will spend more time on that as we get into chapter 4. But what we are going to park on for just a moment is this concept of being a child of God. Now, this phrase is one of the most well-used in contemporary culture among two specific groups of people, the spiritual but not religious and the religious but not judgy. And they really like this phrase, children of God. The spiritual but not religious crowd are those who have rejected the absolute truths of the Bible and yet feel some connection or draw to the spirit realm. They perceive that there is a God, but would interpret God through something other than the truth of God's Word. They would interpret God through nature. They would interpret God through emotion. They would interpret God through experience. They would interpret God through music. They they recognize the spiritual, but they divorce the spiritual from a personal, revelatory, almighty God. They're spiritual, but not religious, you would say. They're the ones, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying you can't even use that term to describe yourself, but I'm talking about that particular group of people who have rejected the Bible, but have not rejected the concept of God. And then you have a group that you would perhaps call religious, but not judgy. They're the ones who hold opinions, but don't consider them the only truth, or are afraid or unwilling to stand upon the truth. This is the crowd of people who go to church but don't allow biblical truth to truly impact the way they live their lives. They live by some standard of morality, but they don't begrudge anybody to live by theirs. They, are, they may be highly religious, they may not be highly religious, but they are not what we would say uh, those who understand what the Bible truly teaches. Probably not born again. And among both of these crowds, you'll hear this quite often. Well, we are all the children of of God. We are all the children of God. And what they mean by that is that God is their originator, and so God is, in some way, shape, or form, they consider Him their Father. They tend to be at least semi-universalist, that everybody will get to God. 
that God doesn't reject anyone as long as you are genuine and authentic in whatever faith you choose to hold. As long as you are a good person and you're genuine and you seek, you seek God and you seek uh, to, to be kind to your fellow man, then, then you're on His good side and you're going to be fine. So you may be at work, you may be at the store or chatting with someone on social media and, or sitting next to someone on the bus and you'll hear that phrase, well, we are all the children of God after all. After all, we're all the children of God. And this isn't meant to, it's meant to imply this, that regardless of what we do or of what we believe or of what we think, we are all God's children. He loves us all. And for lack of better term, it's all just going to work out in the end, Right? It's a very wishy-washy statement. It's all going to work out in the end. We're, we're all going to be okay. God is going to God is going to work it all. And and you know if if you're good and you're kind and you give more than you take in this life and you're you're more kind than you are you know the karma idea, then it's all going to be okay. But that's not what this verse is saying, is it? For ye. Of course, we know that Paul is or, uh, yeah, that Paul is writing to a believer audience here. For ye are all children of God, but he conditions that statement, doesn't he? By faith, he says, in Christ Jesus, on the authority of God's word. Look, folks, we are not all children of God. Are we all created by God? Absolutely. Are we all accountable to God? Certainly, we are. Are we all God's children? No. No. Verse 26 tells us the condition by which a person becomes a child of God is by faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. You want to make God your Father, you come through Christ. And this is not the only verse that links a person's justification by faith with their entrance into the family of God. In John 1, verses 11-12, through 12, we read, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Those who believe on Jesus' name are given the power to become the sons of God. Not all men, but those who believe. Carrying over our understanding of being a part of Abraham's spiritual seed by faith, we read this, which Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 8. He says, That is, they which are the children of the flesh, that would be of Israel, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. The children of God are those who have been born again by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The children of God are those who are a part of Abraham's spiritual posterity. And as we've learned over the past several weeks, Abraham's spiritual posterity is derived from his faith. So that those who believe God, believe the revealed Word of God, are ushered into the same reality of righteousness, imputed righteousness that Abraham was ushered into by this faith. And so we become Abraham's spiritual seed by this faith. And Paul says in Romans 9, the same thing that he's saying here in Galatians chapter 3, that the ones who are the children of God are the ones who have come through Christ. And as Paul asserts this reality that those who have accepted Christ by faith are the children of God 
and have left the schoolmaster of the law to enter into the family of God, he uses this to make a very important point about the nature of the church. And his point begins in verse 27. He says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul uses two allusions here to describe what happened the moment you were justified by faith through accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. The first allusion is that in, as being baptized into Christ. And we see this, in fact, uh, we, we would call it uh, not so much an allusion as what happens. It's just personified through baptism. But the spirit baptism, being placed into Christ through baptism, this is not water baptism, the physical baptism. Physical baptism is far more connected to your obedience to God and your testimony before the church than it is to anything spiritual. But the moment which you are saved, we call Holy Spirit baptism. And this is when God places you into Christ and seals you with the Holy Spirit. We read about this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In these verses, we see our same writer here, Paul, emphasizing that since we have been baptized into Christ, that we have been placed into Christ, divinely associated with Christ through faith, that's what baptism is. It's an association. Physical baptism is a physical, public association with Christ. Holy Spirit baptism is the moment of spiritual association with Christ where God associates you with Christ spiritually. We have been divinely associated through faith with Christ, not just into eternal life, but into also Christ's death. The message then is that those who are associated with Christ's death and resurrection, His death and His life, through the baptism of the Spirit, should live in the power of the resurrected life. Dead to self, alive unto God. Dead to sin, alive unto righteousness. Dead to the flesh, alive to the Spirit. And we are alive on the basis of our salvation. And thus Christ's resurrection. Added to this is the idea, however, notice he says that we have been baptized into Christ, and he says, as many as you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That word meaning, literally, to clothe. It's the same idea, but from an external perspective. The picture of baptism is that we have been, by someone else, by specifically God the Father, placed into Christ so that Christ has enveloped us. That's baptism, right? You are placed into the water and you are brought up again. You are enveloped in the water. You have been baptized into Christ. You have been placed fully into Christ. The picture of putting on Christ is that you are placing Him fully around you. That you are putting Him on. That He is enveloping you by you stepping into Him. Do you see the interesting duality here? In one, the Spirit of God is placing you or the, or the Father is placing you into Christ through the Spirit of God. In the other, you are putting Christ on yourself. 
Both are valid, as in the one case we see the fact that our salvation is completely apart from us. And then in the other case, we recognize that once we have been saved by grace through faith, it's our duty, our responsibility, and our privilege to put Christ on every day. To put on the whole armor of God. To die daily to self. To be crucified with Christ. To live as unto Him. The idea of putting on Christ perhaps calls our minds back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which we studied many weeks ago now, where Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, yes, I've been saved. I've been placed into Christ, baptized into His death and into His resurrection. But then I need to put on Christ. I need to assume Him. I need to die daily to self. I need to live the Christ life every day. Certainly, we can also find these exhortations in Ephesians chapter 4. I love Ephesians chapter 4. It's becoming one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's, it's a fantastic passage of practical Christian living. And I won't read all of verses 21 through 32, which I would encourage you to go back and read at some point. But I will read you a couple of verses. In verses 21 through 24 of Ephesians 4, we read this. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to, to the de- deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, former conversation, we know in the King James that word conversation literally means action, testimony, everything that we do. It doesn't just mean what we speak. It means everything that we do. It's our, it's our actions. It's our testimony. And so here we see Paul say that you as believers need to recognize that because you have been placed into Christ, you need to put off the old man and you need to put on the new man created it says, in righteousness and in true holiness. Thus it is that we who have been baptized into Christ ought to have likewise put on Christ and assumed in our own hearts the mindset of Christ in all things. And this is where I'm going with this, okay? Assuming in our own hearts and minds Christ's mind. Assuming Christ's mind. Not just that I have been saved from the power of sin by being baptized into Christ, but now I am taking Christ and I am putting Him on me. I am, re- I am changing the way I think. I'm changing how I understand to align myself with God, with what He thinks and with what He understands. And that includes our perspective on diversity, which Paul says in verses 28 and 29. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And this is the argument Paul is making here. He's saying, look, if you are in Christ and you have put on Christ, then this is what you need to know. There's no such thing as Jew and Greek in Christ. There's no such thing as male or female in Christ. There's no such thing as bond or free in Christ. We are all in Christ. 
We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all Abraham's seed. We're all spiritual royalty. And this is the focus of Paul's words here. Now, as we see this, his, his direct emphasis would be the Jew and the Gentile difference, right? Because this is the big law thing. Paul is, is combating legalism in this church. And these Judaizing legalizers would have said somehow the Jews are better. The Jews are a better race of people. Somehow you're more special if you can become more like a Jew. You're more special if you're circumcised. You're more special if you keep the law because you're more like a Jew and the Jews are special and so you're a more special Christian. And so we see where this is coming from. Paul is specifically speaking of this Jew and Gentile. And you say, well, pastor, it doesn't say Jew and Gentile there. It says Jew and Greek. Well, yes, it does say Jew and Greek. Nationally, um, the Jew would be the child of Israel. And then as you think about where they were in Galatia, you'd have basically two different people groups. You'd have Jews and you'd have Greeks. Uh, this, that doesn't mean we can't expand it to all the Gentile world. It's just, as far as Paul writing to this people group, this church, these churches, this was what they were dealing with. The division between the Jew and the Greek. Spiritually, there is no difference, Paul says. By extension, however, and Paul does extend this here, he doesn't just stop at Jew and Greek. He brings this philosophy full circle. He remarks as well that spiritually speaking, it's not just national distinctives that disappear in Christ. It's every external distinctive. There is no nationality. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. All are the same in Christ. There is no economic class. Bond or free, it doesn't matter. The same, we're all the same in Christ. Gender, doesn't matter. Male or female, all are the same in Christ. And since we are in Christ and Christ was the recipient of the spiritual promises that were given to Abraham, and we are in Christ, that means the spiritual promises that were given to Abraham are ours, and that we are direct recipients of those promises. And as Christ was Abraham's seed, and we are in Christ, thus we are Abraham's seed. And that's the argument that Paul is making here. Spiritual seed, to be specific. But as we apply this evening, I would like to pursue our application from two somewhat distinct but definitively interrelated directions. And I'm going to begin with the application that is least related to our immediate text, and then we'll work our way back into it. And our first point is this. Physically, there are many biblically-based distinctives, but race is not one of them. When I say that there are many biblically-based distinctives in Scripture, physically speaking, I mean that God has ordained various divisions in this world. In the Garden of Eden, God ordained gender. You know that? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. He created them, male and female. God created gender distinctions. The Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, God created nationality as we think of it today. He confused the languages and the languages were confused by family groups. And so these family groups went off and they created what we now know as the nations. And the nations were created through family groups. Not through appearances. Through family groups. Very important. Genesis 11, verses 7 and 8. 
Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left to build the city. So they had all combined into one and God scattered the languages and they dispersed by the groups that had been formed into the same language, presumably by family. And those families repopulated the earth and scattered as they were right to do, as they were, had been commanded to do at the beginning. And thus we find different nationalities. You say, well, how did they start looking different? Well, because when you have the similar gene traits in one particular area and you're intermarrying with those of similar gene traits, then those are going to bubble up to the surface. And then you have certain gene traits that aren't as um, compatible to certain climates, and so they're going to go find another climate, such as the fact that black-skinned people tend to be vitamin D deficient, and so they would go somewhere where there's more sun, whereas light-skinned people don't have that problem, so they could live somewhere where there's less sun, right? And so we have these things that happen, but... but at the Tower of Babel, they all looked the same. They were all intermarrying and intermingling until they were scattered by the languages and thus by family, not by looks. had nothing to do with the way they looked. We see the Bible speak of the poor and the rich and the Bible recognizes that as long as mortal governments and nations exist, there will always be the poor and the rich. There will always be the haves and the have-nots. It's a, a part of the sinful system in which we live but what we do not find in Scripture is the notion that men and women with different colored skin are different from one another. Now, this may seem basic, but it's got to be preached. And it's kind of unfortunate that it has to be preached, but it does need to be preached. We don't find it in the Bible. I mentioned already that national division has always been regarded by language, culture, and family. And while sinful men have always judged men based upon their externals, the mind of God has made it clear through the Word of God that the color of a man's skin speaks nothing about him and his humanity. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching at Mars Hill. He's preaching to the Greeks in Athens. And in his sermon, he says this in verses 24 through 26. God that made the worlds and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Did you see what Paul said as he was preaching to the Athenians? He said that God has made all nations at all times, in all habitations, out of one blood. The idea is this. Regardless of the color of your skin, we are all human. If I were to need a blood transfusion, if we were going to take this statement by Paul to its farthest end, it wouldn't matter what the color of your skin was as far as whether or not I could take your blood. It wouldn't matter at all. Thus, we find that biblically speaking, there is only one race, the human race. That is the only race presented in the Bible, the human race. We are all of one blood. 
one blood, the same stuff. Certainly we can divide people up. They divide by language. They divide by origin. They divide by family. You can divide by gender. We recognize, however, that a person's language or their origin or their family do not speak to their capabilities, their intelligence, uh, do not speak to anything as to what makes them them. And yet it stands that people throughout the centuries have imposed the false standard of skin color upon men as a gauge of their worth. Now, if we were to trace this philosophy, it would go back every time to evolutionary moorings. We can see it as Darwin began uh, popularizing his theory, but we can see it well before that. Did you know that Darwin wasn't really the first one to espouse evolutionary thinking? You know, if you were to read in Aristotle and Plato and the Greek philosophers, you'd find the same idea. The ideas that man has come from something other than a, a personal creator, that somehow this world is, has been wound up. They may use some um, intelligent designer, they may not. But the idea that, that things have evolved did not begin with Darwin. It was just a time period where science could give it a certain flavor. And um, the pseudoscience could validate in men's wicked, rebellious hearts what they already wanted, which was to deny the existence of a god. But the idea that the colored man or the Native American or the um, Chinese person or, or whatever race you want to, uh, whatever racial division as as espoused in society you want to talk about, the idea that they are somehow lower on the evolutionary ladder or that they are somehow a, a, a lesser being is the idea that has spurred so much of racism over the generations. That somehow the man with the dark colored skin is not really a man. He is just an animal. Or he is two-thirds of a man as was the case for many years as far as voting rights, correct? That idea is espoused in the the idea that that he's not fully human. He is a lesser form of humanity. Thus, he is not worthy of the same dignity that, that we would give to one of God's human creatures. The image of God in man. The evolutionary thinking, it's evolutionary thinking that brings this up. And as evolution is patently false, so too would naturally be this philosophy of ranking men according to their perceived evolutionary progress. God sees but one race, the human race, and God's people should as well. This is what Paul is saying, that if you have been placed into Christ through baptism, if you have been placed into Christ and you have put on Christ, then put on Christ's thinking about spiritual equality. Put on Christ's thinking about the others that are around you. Throughout history, by the way, those who understand the Word of God have always found their way to this philosophy of the human race, one race. As we think about bigotry and discrimination throughout time, oftentimes it has been clothed in the veneer of religion, hasn't it? That people have sought to use religion to justify their bigotry and discrimination against people of a certain color or of certain character traits. As a matter of fact, many people trace the curse of Cain 
back to black skin. Have you ever heard that before? It's not true. There's nothing in the Bible that says that's true. The black people are not a cursed race. There's nothing in the Bible that would imply that. And yet somehow, throughout the generations it has been used, the Bible has been used as a means by which to support bigotry and discrimination. Then how do you explain the book of Acts? How do you explain the preaching of one blood? How do you explain that there's no nationality in Christ? How do you explain that there's not even gender in Christ? See, th- these things show us that God, that, that, that God is not behind that kind of abject use of biblical misinterpretation to support bigotry and discrimination. You know, well before any sort of civil war, back in the 1700s, in the colonies, churches were fighting to end slavery. Back in England, you had men like William Wilberforce fighting to end the slave trade, fighting for the dignity of humanity. And every man who is honest with their understanding of the Word of God will be led to this understanding that God has created one race, the human race, and all are created in the image of God and all have the dignity of being a a, a particularly special created being of God called a human. And you know, Christians haven't just biblically justified discrimination and bigotry through the Bible. They've done the same thing with evolution, right? They've done the same thing with sodomy today, haven't they? They'll use the Bible to try to prove all of these points. But it doesn't change the fact that they stand in contradiction to what the Bible tells us. And so as these battles continue to wage across the nation, it's our privilege to put on Christ in this regard. Know where we stand. We stand not for the supremacy of any skin color, for skin color is little more than the wrapping with which our humanity is packaged. We stand upon biblical truth that there is but one race, the human race, and that every human stands before God equally And that means equally a sinner and equally a candidate for the love of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And this brings us to our second point today, which brings us a little bit closer to what Paul is saying here. Spiritually, point number two. First point, physically, there are many biblically-based distinctions, but race is not one of them. Spiritually, there is only one biblically-based division, and that division is is this, believer or unbeliever. When it comes to a person's eternal standing before God, we see but this one division, believer or unbeliever. Nationality doesn't matter. Are you a believer? Are you an unbeliever? There is no greater advantage spiritually or disadvantage spiritually based upon nationality. Gender doesn't matter. Male or female, there's no greater spiritual advantage or disadvantage based upon your gender, spiritually. All are one in Christ. Now, as I say this, let me state what this does not mean. This does not mean that the Bible doesn't present limitations to spiritual roles or different spiritual functions in church, family, and society. There is no difference between male or female in Christ. 
The women in this room who have accepted Jesus Christ stand before God just as justified as any man in this room. But just because men and women stand before Christ, stand before God on equal footing in Christ, so that it can be doctrinally and practically stated that men and women are equal in the eyes of God, this does not mean under any circumstances that God sees men and women as having equal spiritual or physical roles upon this earth. The Bible makes it very clear that men are called by God to lead, to lead the family as husbands and father, to lead the church as pastors and deacons. We have spoken of this, or pastors, elders, whatever word you want to use, as the leaders of the church. We've spoken of this on several occasions, and will not today reference all of the texts where we assert this to be true. But it is imperative that we understand these verses and the others which say the same thing and understand that they do not imply that men and women's spiritual roles upon this earth are interchangeable, only that neither stands at a particular advantage or disadvantage spiritually before God. So in the context of spiritual roles in family and society, what does this mean? It means that the woman who is faithful to the role that she has been given, wife, mother, whatever roles the Lord has placed her in, she will receive just as much reward for fulfilling her role faithfully as will the father, husband, as will the pastor, leader. Because they have done what God has asked them to do. They have fulfilled the role that God has given to them to fulfill. Don't make the mistake in thinking that because a woman is forbidden to teach in the church, to have church leadership positions, that she is somehow less valuable to God or somehow she inherently loses the ability to have the same rewards in heaven. The baker is rewarded in the context of baking, not in the context of welding. The policeman is rewarded within the context of policing, not within the context of firefighting. And the wife and the mother is rewarded by God within the context of the role that God has given you in society and in family and in church he doesn't judge you against biblical masculinity. The women in this room will stand before God and answer for the role that God has given them, whether in the family or in the church or in society, and they will be rewarded within the context of that role. Women, don't think that you are unqualified to receive honor before God simply because He has not allowed you to carry the, pa- the burden of pastoral ministry or carry the burden of church leadership, or carry the burden of leading your family, or leading in your marriage. No woman in this room will stand before God and receive less reward because she followed God's command and didn't become a pastor. In fact, the Word of God and the character of God would tell us the very opposite is true. That you will be rewarded for joyfully accepting the role that God has given to you in family and in church and in society. And as we understand what it means that we are all one in Christ, regardless of origin or family or nationality or gender, this should cause us to respond in several ways. First, it should cause us to reject any notion of spiritual division. Reject the idea that there are some who are spiritually inferior to others by the nature of their unchangeables. Reject the idea that a born-again child is somehow less a Christian or less a church member than a born-again adult. 
reject the idea that the sins of certain people or the sins of people in certain contexts is somehow less offensive to God than the sins of other people or in other contexts. Reject the idea that God cares about what a person's gender is or nationality is or ethnicity is when we seek to win the lost to Christ or to assimilate them into the body of Christ. None of this matters because if a person is in Christ, he or she is spiritually the same as you. He is Abraham's seed just as you are Abraham's seed. She is Abraham's seed just as you are Abraham's seed. We are all sinners, saved by grace, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and on our way to heaven where we will all rule and reign with Christ as He has ordained us to do. So first, it should cause us to reject this notion of spiritual divisions. That was the problem in the church. The Jews are better than the Greeks. Second, it should cause us to see physical divisions very differently. If you look at the world around you in a spiritual sense, if you look at the world around you with the eyes of God, you will not see gender or nationality or language when you look spiritually. What you will see is souls. Now, this does not mean that in other contexts you will not become aware of the differences. Young men, as you grow, you will begin to notice women and recognize that women are different and attractive to you. This is natural. This is normal. This is right. Within the context of virtue, it's God's design that you would be attracted, that you would embrace the differences between men and women. And the same goes with young women and men. Societally, There are times where a person's nationality or language or gender or even the color of their skin, their ethnicity, may be, not to you, but in the context of society, come to to play. And what I mean by that is this. This world is filled with bigotry and discrimination. And we will need to come to some understanding of it in society. You'll need to understand that you might lose a job because of your skin color, nationality, that you might lose a job because of your gender or because of your religious convictions. That people are bigots, they are discriminatory, and they are more than willing to judge you on the basis of those things. We can't pretend like they aren't a factor in the sin-sick world in which we live, but they ought never to be a factor in your heart and mind. You as you look at people, as you interact with people, shouldn't see those things from a spiritual context. Gender and ethnicity and nationality are things that should not factor into your decision as to whether or not you love a person or whether you're going to treat them with kindness and with respect. We as followers of God should treat all men and women regardless of differences externally as eternal souls. And if we see them as eternal souls, then the only thing we see is this. Are they a believer or are they an unbeliever? Are they in Christ or are they outside of Christ? Our third point is this. We need to remember what discrimination truly is as well. Discrimination is not when we speak against synthetic lifestyle choices. Discrimination is when we speak against inherent human attributes. The sodomite was not born with a genetic predisposition to sodomy. He was born with a sin nature which compels him to reject God's design. The 
person who rejects their gender is not this way because they were a one gender's mind born into another gender's body. They are that way because they were born with a sin nature which compels them to reject God's design. These are not genetic inborn characteristics. These are choices which flow directly from a rejection of the design of God. To say that sodomy, transgenderism, or one of the many other acronyms that are out there today is unnatural or is wrong is not you discriminating or being a bigot. It is you stating a biblical truth and it is, in fact, common sense. And as I say that, I say this as well. Knowing a person is a sodomite should not change the way you interact with them if you're looking at them from the proper spiritual perspective. Because whether or not they're a sodomite or they're just a thief or just a liar or just a braggart or just a gossiper, you can put just in front of everything and in front of anything you want as we gauge sins by their perceived level. But the fact of the matter is, if they're an unbeliever, they're an unbeliever. And they're lost in their sin. And it's sin. And we should do what we would do with anyone else. Lovingly show them Christ, not excusing their sin, not approving of their sin, but acting as if they, as an unbeliever, should, or not acting as if they, as an unbeliever, should know better than to act like an unbeliever. The unbeliever is dead in their trespasses and sins, so what are they going to do? They're going to live that death. Death will reign in their life because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. So we would treat them as we would treat any other unbeliever. You love them. You show them Christ. You share with them the gospel. You don't approve of their sin. You don't excuse their sin. But you don't expect them to live like a Christian when they're not. You love your neighbor as yourself, as the Bible would say. That's not discrimination. It's not discrimination to tell a person who's in sin that they're in sin. That's not bigotry. That's not being a phobe, whatever phobe you want to use, right? Uh, the idea stemmed from the Greek word phobos, which means to fear. The phobias, homophobe, big one today, right? Transgenderophobe, I don't know quite what, how they call that one. All the phobes, right? You're not a phobe because you say a person is sinning when they're sinning. Unless we're also thiefophobes and gossipophobes and prideophobes and whatever sin, fornicationophobes. But that's not the thing. We don't hate them for their sin. We simply tell them they're sinners. On the other hand, to treat a person differently because of the color of their skin, the origin of their family, this is another issue altogether. This is an unchangeable This is something they were born into. This is not a choice which they have made. It has no bearing upon them eternally. These are synthetic differences which say nothing about their heart, their relationship with God, but only about the package within within which they come. And to treat a person differently upon these conditions is to perform a great divine injustice upon them. God sees all people from this eternal perspective. Believer, 
or unbeliever. We identify the believers and we treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow spiritual seeds of Abraham, your spiritual family. We identify those who are unbelievers and we treat them with the love of Christ and we seek to win them to Christ. That is your spiritual mission field, your spiritual calling, your spiritual privilege. And so what I mean by this is simply, there is no place in the heart or mind of the believer for true bigotry and discrimination. Not the world's definition, but legitimate bigotry and discrimination. Where those things exist, and they do exist in Christian circles, some degree of understanding concerning God's character is missing because it's not a reflection of God. Now, the title of this message this evening is A Divine, The Divine Solution to Isms. Racism, sexism, all of those issues. Throughout the generations, history bears record that the true church of Christ has always been opposed to judging men based upon the unchangeables and the negligible external differences that we have. When the world around us clamors for solutions to this problem of bigotry, discrimination, racism, they call for affirmative action, and they call for safe spaces, and they call for all of these things that they're calling for today, we hold in our hands and our hearts the only true solution to men's unreasonable bigotry, to men's unreasonable discriminations. When we see people the way God sees them, we don't see the external packaging, we see the eternal souls. We see those who have accepted Christ through the lens of familial love as brothers and sisters in Christ. We see those who have not accepted Christ through the lens of divine love and those who need saving grace. We love our friends. We love our enemies. We do good to all men. And Paul says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We pour ourselves into the lives of others, not for the sake of this life, not to gain, not to please others, but for the sake of the one who has ushered us into eternal life, the life that is to come. And in doing so, what we do, brothers and sisters in Christ, is we reflect the character of the one who has purchased that eternal life. And when we do that, God the Father is pleased. And as we said this morning in our first Samuel, technically Psalm 34 message, what is the definition of success? It's when you have gone through a situation, you've come out of it, rich or poor, tough or easy, when you come out of the situation and God has been pleased. God is pleased. Let's close in prayer.